Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Bob Iger's memoir, autobiography. I have no idea what the difference is. You can explain it to me. You're an English major. Wow. Way to put me on the spot there. (laughs) So before we, we get into that, discuss some Disney news. So Disney had their earnings, uh, their quarterly earnings release a few weeks ago. So I know a lot of people here do not really care about quarterly earnings reports for for Disney, especially you, Angela. I know finances put you to sleep, but... I'm sorry. What was that? I, I fell asleep. <laughs> I didn't even get into it yet, so should should still be awake. But they did announce uh, some interesting things. So they talk about uh, theme park attendance and, and the movies and different things like that. You can glean a lot of information from it, even if you don't necessarily care about the financials. But what was interesting is... Disney, you know, announced again in, in the last quarter, they announced that park attendance was down. And a lot of people are talking about that, of how Galaxy's Edge is a failure. Disney did mention again this quarter that theme park attendance is still light, although overall spending is up. So I think it's working. Well, they've always mentioned that the Galaxy's Edge has been very successful. They, they didn't want 10-hour lines, that, you know, guest satisfaction seems to be high. And I think what they ultimately wanted with all these add-on experiences is people spending a lot of money on merchandise, on the lightsabers, on the droids, and that seems to be working. So while attendance isn't necessarily up, overall spending is up. But what it does sound like is people are waiting for Rise of the Resistance to open because they mentioned that that makes sense. They mentioned that booking rates are actually up five percent. So while attendance is light, they're starting to see booking pick up for the next few months. So once Rise of the Resistance opens, it looks like the crowds will start coming in. So I think the next quarter here, the next two quarters, we're going to see some big jumps in attendance. Uh, that makes sense. I, It really, I mean, yeah, it's fun to go and, and see, be the pe- first people to see it, but a lot, Disney's a big expense. So if you're going to go, why not wait until wait everything months. is open and then you don't have to go back many times. Especially at this point when you can wait two months and everything will be open. But they did mention that the Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run has had 5 million guests come through. Wow. Which does seem like a lot. Yeah. But then we talked a few weeks ago about the Skyliner having a million guests already in a month. So it's kind of interesting that the uh, Millennium Falcon ride has only had five times as many guests and it's actually been open longer than the Skyliner. So that just goes to show you how many people are really riding that Skyliner and that maybe the Millennium Falcon again, isn't as popular as they would have hoped for. I mean, it it does, the the wait times have been going up, but they're still not as high as Slinky Dog Dash or even Tower of Terror some days. Wow. The other uh, piece of news with the, Halloween being over and now moving into Christmas and the holiday season at Disney. Disney's going to be selling uh, Mickey Christmas tree themed popcorn buckets. Oh, this is reminiscent of, of something we've talked about before. Right. Yeah. In, in Tokyo Disney, they have a lot of different themed popcorn buckets. And so this is one they're going to have here in the U.S. in both parks, Disney World and Disneyland. And apparently it was supposed to be a Mickey's... Uh, Christmas party exclusive, but I guess it was so popular. They're just selling it throughout the park. So it's not an exclusive offer. So you can go, it's, I believe $25. It's pretty cool. It's a, you know, full Christmas tree. Mickey's down the bottom kind of decorating it. It's actually a really nice popcorn bucket. I could see like going back to Japan in a few years and people carrying these too. Like (laughs) 
just to show like, hey, I got this from America. I right. mean, unless they they have it there, which I'm sure I they didn't could. see. I didn't see but any mention that they have them there. But I was going to say Christmas isn't as big of a deal over there. So I don't know. But it would be just kind of a cool thing to have. Fun novelty. Right. So moving into our main topic. And now you can explain to me the difference between an autobiography and a memoir. Okay. I looked it up, but I was right. Okay. So the difference is an autobiography, like just boiled out version of it is an autobiography is basically from start to not finish, but start to now. So, you know, it goes through your like early childhood. Of your life. Yeah, it goes throughout okay. your life, whereas a memoir really usually do- documents a specific time period. Okay, so I guess this would qualify then as a memoir because it's essentially his business career. It's Bob Iger's business career, but he does go back to his childhood a little bit, but it's definitely not his entire life. It's really kind of his start at ABC, and there's a you know some a few chapters on that, but then once he becomes part of the Disney company. That's really the bulk of the book. So his book, again, the title is The Ride of a Lifetime, uh, which is kind of funny because, <laughs> you know, pun on it. Uh, it has the, on theme worst, has the worst cover ever. It's a very business booky cover. It, so it's if literally you've a seen, picture of him and he's looking, I mean, like he looks like a, like a suave, nice looking gentleman. But if you didn't know he was the CEO of Disney, you wouldn't realize who he was unless you know what he looked like. Which yeah, is... and you're not buying this book if you don't know he's the CEO of Disney. But, it, but it, that it, makes him far more interesting. You're right. It is a very you know business business booky cover type thing. But so this book came out a month or two ago. I read it pretty quickly. It's actually a really interesting book. I mean, it, he goes into quite a lot of detail about some of the aspects of his career and is kind of you know pretty honest, at least more honest than I would have expected on since he's still the CEO and still running the company. I mean he's you know he really goes behind the scenes in a lot of stuff and and you know mentions and we'll kind of get into some of the stuff, but you know mentions a lot of the behind the scenes that was going on whenever there was the transition from Michael Eisner to him or a lot of the acquisitions and, and kind of each acquisition that he has been a part of kind of gets its own chapter and he, and he goes into kind of the mechanics behind it. So it's a great book if you're a fan of Disney and kind of want to know more about the history of the company behind the scenes. It's also a really good you know leadership book if you're interested in things like that because he talks about kind of his leadership style and how he empowers people to be successful and reading it, you kind of get an understanding of why Disney has been so successful under his leadership, just based on the way he works. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of talk about some of the more interesting points or highlights, you know, a handful of, of the interesting points from the book. Uh, You know, I don't want to necessarily talk about the entire book or everything because that kind of defeats the purpose. If you want to go, you know, read it. I don't want to kind of talk about everything. So if you read the book, there's nothing for you to read. And this definitely isn't an audio book here that we're <laughs> that we're doing. So you know, if some of the stuff interests you, definitely go out and buy a copy. I believe he's donating all of his proceeds. I know he's donating all of his proceeds to a charity. I believe it is a charity around journalism. I'm not a hundred percent sure on the specific charity, but it is something around um, I think to support journalism or writing or something. Well, like that. it definitely makes sense that he's donating it all because 
apparently, according to at least Wikipedia, in 2015, he earned $44.9 million. That's a million. I mean, yeah, not a billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Well, he mentions in his book here that he has, it sounds like it's a planetarium movie studio, uh, movie theater in his house. And it's a replica. This was interesting. Hashtag humblebrag. No, because what's interesting is it's a replica of the, the screening theater that they use in Pixar. So Pixar apparently has a screening theater like this. And he's so, like, this is so cool. I want one of my own house. Well, he watches, I mean, as the CEO, he watches a lot of these movies. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of starting at the beginning, he got his start at ABC uh, Cap Cities in uh, 1974. And he started as kind of an entry level, bottom rung producer and actually pretty quickly worked his way up. And, and that is one of the you know, kind of more inspiring things if you are somebody starting out your career, and this is more of the business leadership style. He really just hustled his way and did everything he could to do the best work and just learn about the business. He had no idea how TV worked when he started. He had no idea. Uh, he was quickly promoted to, you know, president of, of ABC, and then he had to move out to California, and he was from New York originally. He had to move out to California. He knew nothing about how television shows got made, about really? how movies got made. It's a good lesson to college students because I think a lot of times when they get out of college, they feel very woefully unprepared, and they sometimes don't realize that you oftentimes learn everything you need to know on the job. If you're willing to learn and you listen and you take notes and you pay attention, you can do it. Yeah, exactly. And he even mentions that that whenever they offered him the job of saying that he was going to run the ABC primetime television, he basically said, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never read a script before. Like, I don't know how you work with producers or find talent or everything. And they, the owners basically told him, look, Bob, like, we trust you're going to learn what you need to do. And he talked about that, a feeling woefully unprepared, but he just threw himself into it and learned everything he could and really was successful and worked his way up and wasn't afraid to ask people for help and use other people's expertise. Like I said, so he, he did move up very quickly, uh, you know, in the company. And you know, he, t- he talks about his time at ABC and, and some of the interesting shows that he oversaw. Like he was, was the one that um, greenlit Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh, wow. And he talked about that. And he, ta- and he talked about how, you know, it was very successful. And then you know, they kind of use it as a crutch. Yeah. Because they said, Hey, it's successful. Let's run it every day. And then it, you know, when it came back for a second season, it wasn't successful. So he, he had a lot of those. He was, was I'm trying to think about like by the timeline of who wants to be a millionaire, he must've been there when it was Regis because it was originally Regis. Yeah. yeah, He was was the one. Yeah. It was the original one. Yeah. To uh, Meredith Vieira. Right. I think from Mm -hmm. there. But yeah, he was there. He was the president of ABC Television from 94 to 95. Um, and then the president COO of Capital City slash ABC from 95 until 2006 when Disney when acquired Disney them. Bought them. Right, yeah. So he, he was the one that, that worked on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He uh, greenlit 
Twin Peaks, which is has oh, a has yeah. a has a cult following. Oh, it has a huge cult. And he following. talked about that of how that was a huge risk because it was a very unconventional television show, and everybody told him there's no way this is going to work. Isn't that the one about somebody who got murdered, and then I think yes, she's telling the story basically. I don't know from beyond or what. Yeah, it, it is about a murder, and apparently, I guess that you were never supposed to find out who the murderer was. But so th- there was a lot of creative things behind the scenes, but he talked about that, how he gave them the freedom to make this show and it became wildly successful. And that goodwill helped him because then he had Steven Spielberg and George Lucas calling him wanting to work with ABC whenever they never had that before. But then the creators had so much freedom that the second and third seasons felt like they were going nowhere and there was no intrigue or kind of motivation. And then, you know, eventually they had to cancel the show. So there's just a lot of these up and downs in his career. And one thing he mentioned is he was never afraid to fail. So I was going to say, this is a really, this sounds like a, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the moral translator, you know, the, the moral that we're supposed to get from the, from the story. And it sounds so far like, you know, again, don't be afraid to take risks. Um, sometimes they work out, do un- the unconventional things. Yeah. He actually said that, that he was, he's never been worried about the future or about failing at something. He's always just focused on, you know, doing the best he can. If it doesn't work out, kind of cut your losses and keep moving forward. One of the funny things he did mention is that, you know, and this is again, kind of the business mindset, you know, business side of the book is you need to understand that you're not irreplaceable that, (laughs) which I find hilarious because if you know anything about Bob Iger over the past five or six years is that he will not leave (laughs) as CEO. He was supposed to be done I want to say 2015 or 16, but then with the opening of Shanghai Disney, he said, no, I need to stay and see this through. And then he was supposed to be done a few years later. And then they acquired Fox and he said, no, I need to stay and see this through. (laughs) And now he's supposed to retire. His contract runs out in 2021. And he says he's going to step back, but there's no successor in place. It's the 50th anniversary, so who knows? So I find it interesting that he says that. So do you get the impression from reading his book that he very much, that he loves his job or is he just like a control freak so he can't give it up? Or maybe there's no clear successor so he feels uncomfortable with giving up the reins? Well, there definitely has been some turmoil the past few years of they've had multiple potential successors leave the company recently within the past few years. And again, I think it's part of they were named successors and then Bob never stepped down. So they left. So they felt like they were going nowhere. They were treading water. I definitely get the feeling from this book that he does love his job and that he stays on because he is doing these big projects, opening Shanghai. And the board and and people definitely wanted him to stay on, especially with this Fox acquisition, to, to be a part of it. But as I was reading it, I did kind of question myself of how much of this is the truth and how much of it is romanticized. Yeah. Him kind of romanticizing it that, you know, all of this stuff that he did, that he was really the key part. I mean, I will say it it is phenomenal and we'll kind of get into some of the, you know, acquisitions because that's a main part of the book. Once he he becomes CEO of Disney in 2005. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, he took some crazy risks and I really do think that, the the acquisitions he did and the way he integrated them and the success that those companies have had as part of Disney, there's really not a lot of people that could have done it successfully. So 
I do have to give him the benefit of the doubt and really think that he has some sort of secret sauce as a part of this, you know, as a leader that really it makes sense that he keeps extending because he keeps doing these great things. But, but he has talked about, I mean, he's going to be 70 by the time we hit 2021. And he has, you know, he did mention it's like, Hey, eventually I need to stop and spend time with my grandkids and stuff and, and kind of, relax a little bit that kind of power can be so intoxicating though because you can convince yourself and it is true but to an extent but as he also said you are replaceable but it's intoxicating to be able to be i mean to say that you are the ceo of disney and to have your hand in all these projects and so any success that they get you yourself are are, you know you get the attaboys from that pretty much yeah and and I have heard that he is like a very nice person, that he's very well respected across the industry. And he's not, you know, like sometimes you hear Hollywood executives or, you know, I want to like cast dispersions or anything, but, but you, there's kind of that stereotype. Yeah, I will. But no, but I mean, there's that stereotype, yeah. you know, that, 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 that television producers, movie producers can, like you said, kind of be full of themselves. But I have heard that he is like pretty well respected and down to earth. And I don't think he has, I don't think he, he feels that way that, you know, he's the only one who can do this and he's just doing it to maintain the power. He does seem very humble and down to earth. I mean, he came from very humble beginnings and like we talked about really just kind of worked his way up and it had a pretty meteoric rise i mean reading the book it's interesting just to see that of how quickly you know he started abc and then just moved up you know Mm -hmm. basically he was about ready to quit and then just went because he felt like he wasn't moving up and then he just went from there and just ran the whole thing so so the moral there is maybe have a little bit more patience exactly exactly (laughs) Um, so yeah, so, so moving along, you know, there, there was a turmoil in the early two thousands with Michael Eisner. He had been CEO of Disney since the eighties and he became CEO because, uh, there was, you know, other turmoil then. So he came in under, <laughs> Lots of turmoil. yeah, he came in under, you know, turmoil and really did a great job through the nineties, expanded out the theme parks, kind of rebuilt animation. And then things started kind of going south again in the 2000s, and there was more turmoil. And so I believe it was actually you know Walt's nephew and Roy's son. Roy, Roy E. Disney, Roy e. who Disney. helped to push for Bob Iger to actually be the successor. Well, well he, pu- he, pushed for, he pushed for Michael Eisner to leave. Yeah. And then there was a, a long kind of process and, and – and Bob Iger describes it in the book of finding the successor as CEO. And a lot of people didn't want him to be CEO because he had been COO under Michael Eisner for so many years that people kind of saw them as one entity. And so it was almost like, well, we've had a lot of problems with Michael. So what makes you any different? You've been running the company when all these issues have been happening as well. And he talks about this of how he almost had to run a political campaign of and he had a political consultant help him that, hey, we can't focus on the past. The past is the past. You have to put it behind you. Very, very Lion King. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. And we have to just focus on the future. So I can only tell you what I'm going to do going forward. You know, the the vision that he has and the vision he laid out. And again, I'm not sure if he's going back and kind of refining this because if you read the vision he has, it is basically spot on what the company is today. Huh. So he had he had three things. He wanted to make 
high-quality branded content. Okay. He wanted to... Disney's great at the branding. Well, and again, you have to remember, so this is before all the acquisitions. This is before Pixar. This is before Marvel, before Star Wars. Right. They are... Coming off the 90s, animation is faltering again. And that's and that was Roy's big thing. Roy uh, was a big proponent of animation. And that's why he saw that slipping and thought Michael wasn't doing enough. The parks weren't doing well. Disney California Adventure wasn't doing too great. Disney Paris wasn't doing too great. So he wanted high-quality branded content. He wanted to embrace technology. And he wanted to become a truly global company. So if, if you read those three <laughs> and then... I don't know what the cat's doing today. <laughs> so so if you read those three things and then you think about Disney today, I mean, it is spot on exactly what they're doing. I mean, the high quality branded content that drove all the acquisitions because he knew that there was going to be this influx of everybody producing content. So you needed to have a good name. Embrace technology. You have streaming. I mean, it makes perfect sense that they're going like Head, headlong into streaming and they don't care if that's going to cannibalize DVD sales or television sales because they need to embrace technology and be a truly global company. And that drove them moving into Hong Kong and Shanghai and investing more in Tokyo and really spreading the brand throughout the world. And you can see you know, Disney's huge throughout the world. So it is kind of interesting how he laid that plan out and he's basically followed it. So, so one of the big things he did was all the acquisitions and it's it's pretty amazing the transformation Disney has had under his tenure since mm-hmm. 2005 so the first acquisition was was Pixar and it's really interesting because I never knew this but the biggest thing I kind of learned about the Pixar acquisition was he became really great friends with Steve Jobs yeah and I had no idea that they were such uh, close friends and there was a really bad relationship between Michael Eisner and Steve Jobs. And Bob did what he could to repair it. And when he first met Steve, he didn't talk about acquiring Pixar, but he had an idea for essentially the video iPod. So he said, you know, I really love my iPod, but it would be really great if I could watch videos on it. Uh. And Steve Jobs came to him a couple weeks later and said, hey, I want to show you something because they were actually developing one. Uh-huh. And on the spot, Bob Iger said, this is great. We'll put ABC television shows on it. So whenever, if you remember, whenever the video iPod launched, they had like Lost on there, Desperate Housewives, a couple ABC shows, which helped push sales of Uh that. But it then kind of... Yeah, but that also kind of put you know, ABC at the forefront of this new technology too. Right. Which is all, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very symbiotic relationship there. They're both getting something very valuable. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was embracing technology, but it also showed Steve that Bob was different because you could never make a decision. Michael Eisner, you know, Steve Jobs felt could never make a decision quickly. And basically Bob Iger in front of Steve said, we're doing this, it's done. And the deal got done very quickly. So it started that relationship and it only grew over time. And okay, just just a little historical context for the kids, anybody listening with their child at home. Back in like the early 2000s, 
the iPod and iPhones and things, those were either non, like some of them, they were just coming out. And then also like iPhones, like only super were fancy bricks. people had them and they were well, This bricks. was before iPhones. This yeah, was, that's true. This was iPods but where they were many, like, many There many were bricks. many different kinds of phones. Many different people had all these different phones. Well, they didn't have smartphones then. Well, right. Yeah, you and couldn't then, watch all that but stuff. But now, like anytime you're on TV, you're like, okay, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, the whoever's on, on TV has an iPhone and then the other 5% it's some sort of galaxy phone but just for a little historical context yeah and again I mean Steve Jobs created this whole world yeah you know I mean it's, it, crazy. it's amazing so so th- this worked their relationship with 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 Steve and eventually they reached out to buy Pixar again and all of these acquisitions were like this but today we look at it and we're like that was a great move yeah but it was not a slam dunk most people at Disney on the board thought it was crazy to pay seven billion dollars for Pixar yeah they thought they have no movies in the pipeline. I believe I believe Finding Nemo was the movie they were working on or it had just recently come out. I think F- Finding Nemo had just, just recently come out. And I was going to say, I think Finding Nemo might have been the last one before Disney Well, Cars. Them. They were working on Cars. Cars was the last well, one. Well, Disney shouldn't have acquired them before Cars. <laughs> just well, that one did That one did very well. I know it did. But, but so they believe that after that they didn't have anything. And Bob actually met with them and saw all the movies they were working on and realized the creativity that Pixar had and how great their process was and how he was beginning to realize what Roy was saying is that animation was broken and that there were problems. And he came to see that Pixar was going to be able to re- revitalize Disney animation. So he knew it was necessary. And, and he knew that you know so many of the great characters – Pixar had produced were more popular than the Disney characters at the time. So it it really was something that needed to be done, but a lot of people were skeptical, but eventually he got the deal done. And, you know, one of the interesting things, and this is kind of goes to show the relationship between Bob and Steve is that Steve told Bob that he had cancer. Like nobody else knew at the time. And he told him right before they were about to close the deal because he said, if you want to back out, it's fine. Like I, you can tell them I said no and changed my mind at the last minute, but I want you to know this. And, you know, Bob Iger said, I quickly kind of figured that Steve was important, but he wasn't key to the deal. So I said, no, you know, we're moving forward. And that really like cemented their relationship. And they, they were friends through the rest of Steve Jobs' life, so, and I think you even told me that they would like call each other like, almost weekly oh, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. They they were they were very so close they were friends, like, which yeah, I this never isn't, I this never isn't knew. Just a business relationship; it is an actual friendship. I don't I don't know if I talk to a lot of my friends once a week, so that they had a pretty close knit relationship, right? So the other acquisitions, uh, Marvel was the other big one after Pixar, and again. A lot of people doubted Marvel. They thought that this made no sense. Disney actually looked at purchasing Marvel years before under Michael Eisner and passed on it because they felt it didn't fit in with the Disney brand. It was too adult. But then once Iron Man and the MCU movies came out, they started to realize that there was a fit for it. But a lot of people, again, thought this didn't make sense. The uh, CEO of GE at the time, when they they owned uh, NBC Universal thought that it made no sense like they they were just they had no idea and again this kind of comes to Bob Iger doing his homework you know he and his team had researched 
the catalog of Marvel. So they knew that there were thousands of characters full of rich stories. And they saw what they were doing with the movies and kind of saw the plan that they had for the, for the MCU mm-hmm. and knew, again, going back to high quality branded content, he knew the stories were there when, you know, these other CEOs, if you're not a huge comic book fan, you're not going to know about that. You're not going to know the deep well Marvel has. So he kind of saw that diamond in the rough. <laughs> like like Aladdin. Um, and also, I, I don't think it was in your book. I think I read this somewhere that that Steve Jobs, he actually sat down with Steve Jobs and talked about his desire to buy Marvel. And it was like really bothering him. And Steve Jobs didn't even like superheroes. But he's like, you know, if it's this important to you, do it. And he helped to kind of talk him into buying Marvel. Right. And what the issue was is the CEO of Marvel and the owner at the time he didn't want to sell and he was friends with, you know, he knew Steve Jobs. I don't know if he was, I mean, he was really friends with Steve Jobs that many people were, but he knew Steve Jobs. And so yeah, Steve had, Steve put in a good word for him and basically said, Hey, you know, the Pixar deal has been great for me. Bob kind of leaves you alone, lets you run the company. And so that's what got it started with the CEO of Marvel. They had some problems. He's, he's an outspoken guy. He's definitely had, you know, his own issues and that's and that's some of the interesting things. I mean, Iger goes into you know a lot of this behind the scenes detail of the conflict he had with him and how Kevin Feige w- almost left because oh. they were having like major problems at, in the uh, with the movies because they were trying to make these big budget movies, but the Marvel CEO who who remains CEO after the acquisition was uh, very frugal, and so he didn't want to spend all this money he didn't see the value and he wasn't a hollywood type he was somebody that kind of went in purchased comp- distressed companies and kind of turned them around so he was more about keeping costs low and and you know process and, and production and so it was causing a lot of friction so that's actually why foggy was um he used to report to the ceo but then they moved him out and had him report to the head of uh, walt disney studios to, to kind of do that and and some of it was they were preventing movies like Black Panther or Captain Marvel being made because they didn't think a woman superhero would be good as a lead. And Bob said, no, we need to make these movies. And so you know, he made this structure change. And, and so it was really interesting. And that's one of the things I, I got to feel, you know, he's kind of almost like Warren Buffett. He follows that model of acquire great companies and just leave them alone and let them do their own thing. You know, Warren Buffett, when he buys these companies, he does that. He doesn't try to, you know, run them himself. He typically leaves the person in charge and he just wants to fold them in. And Bob Iger does that too. Pixar, he kind of let be its own studio, its own company. He didn't make the Pixar name go away. He let Marvel be the same. And and kind of the same with Star Wars. You know, he he they purchased Star Wars Lucasfilm and they kind of let them go. And I think that's why these acquisitions are so successful cuz so many times companies purchase other companies and then they try to blend the cultures and they try to force everybody into the new system. And there's always a lot of problems. Whereas they kind of, he lets them stand alone. That's why it's why Gavin Belfson didn't want to go through with the, (laughs) with that acquisition. He wanted the holy name still out there. Sale to Amazon. Yeah, exactly. So, but I, I think that's why, again, and that goes to kind of some of his secret sauce of why he's so successful. So, the other, you know, couple acquisitions, Lucasfilm, 
again, a lot of behind the scenes of how George Lucas was very upset with the new trilogy of movies. <laughs> and I think that's just going to kind of stoke the fandom of hey, of people who don't necessarily like the way Disney's treating the, the new trilogy because they didn't use many of George's ideas. And he was kind of upset when he saw the first cut of The Force Awakens that, hey, it's you didn't use anything I came up with. Oh, and just working through that. But he had no, I mean, they told him, hey, we'll read your scripts, but we don't have to use them. You know, but it's just some of that interesting stuff behind the scenes. And if again, if you're interested, you know, definitely get the book. And then the most recent acquisition, it kind of ends on with the 20th Century Fox, the biggest one. And there's not, you know, it, it, it kind of talks about that. It's very recent, so we don't know how that's going to turn out. But I think ultimately, you know, it will turn out well. And and again, it's it's kind of that changing landscape of uh, Rupert Murdoch understood he couldn't stand alone and compete, in, you know, in this new world with with um with the larger conglomerates, you know, AT&T and Time Warner are combining and, and Comcast and Universal. And so he knew he had to sell to somebody. And so he wanted to sell to Disney. That, and that's kind of the end of the book because that basically takes you up to today. And, it, and again, you know, kind of a, just some of the interesting pieces of it. I, I highly recommend reading it. I, I think it's a great read. It's a quick read. I mean, I, I read it very quickly because it's very interesting. I will say that you also are very into those kind of books, those businessy books. So how does this fall since this is something that it's more your, your wheelhouse? How does this fall in with those kind of um, like CEO, how I did it, how I grew a company kind of books? Like, is it, it, do you feel like it's accessible for people who don't read that kind of stuff or? That's what I said earlier. It's part kind of that like business leadership book. You know, there is some of that stuff of, Hey, realize you're replaceable, you know, treat everybody with respect this is how I, I led the company. I had my vision. And then part of it is just really good behind the scenes nuggets of his time as CEO, like what was going on with these acquisitions. And so I think if you are, it's not over the top of, you know, Bob Iger's leadership success, you know, become the number one CEO of all time type thing where it's a really heavy, dry leadership driven book. And it's not like completely all things Disney. So I think it's, I think it's very accessible. So I think, yeah, I think if, if you're interested in Disney, I think it's, it's a really interesting read. And I do think if you're interested in, you know, like these leadership type books, it's probably not as great for somebody like that. I think you have to have an interest in Disney or Marvel uh, as well, because it does lean very heavily on that. But there are some interesting kind of takeaways on his leadership style. So I did want to ask you, what do you think, just because you know there are so many acquisitions that, that Bob Iger was a part of, what do you think is kind of the most important acquisition to Disney? I got it. Okay. Back in the, in like the 19, what, 50s no when, i said when when they acquired the the walt disney world theme park company from walt you mean disneyland yeah whatever oh whatever the name of his business so, is, I, meant, yes. so I said under bob Iger, oh, so not 1950s oh, okay, fine. yeah so what do you since Iger kind of came up like what the most more recent acquisitions okay. what do you think of the most important one I think so. I have t- I have two answers here, but the most, the by far the most important one I think was the Pixar one, and I think that the reason for that is it forged from you know hearing you talk. Um, it gave Disney 
the ability to stay in the game because they were able to acquire Pixar's animation processes and some and like learn from them a bit and that helped them stay in the game long enough till they got things like Marvel which right now I'm sure makes them probably the most money of anything else that they they do they've made billions of dollars off of the movies so but I think that that first one and then the relationship that was forged between Iger and Steve Jobs which seemed like they had a really good relationship I think that that really helped their the success of the company overall okay. yeah what do you what about I you? would agree I think Pixar is a great one I'll do a little bit of a cop out kind of like you did saying Disneyland with the theme parks but <laughs> I mean I really think the most important acquisition in recent times of the company is the acquisition of ABC. I was going to say the, the acquisition of Bob Iger. Yeah, because really without Bob Iger, without ABC, so ABC really helped a lot because you had ESPN, ABC. That really drove profits when the theme parks weren't doing well. But having Bob Iger, the way he has transformed the company over the past 14 years or so with all of these other acquisitions I don't know that Disney would be a standalone company if it wasn't for him because in the early 2000s when the theme parks weren't doing well animation wasn't doing well I don't know that you would have had somebody willing to take the risk of kind of gambling so much money on Pixar on Marvel because the company wasn't doing so well. Like I said, there was a lot of turmoil. You could have very easily had an outside CEO come in and take a very conservative approach mm-hmm. and and not try to make a big acquisition. And they could have easily been purchased by a Comcast or an Apple or an AT&T. Did, didn't you read somewhere that Apple... That they well, thought Bob, that if, if Bob Iger said on. that, that if Steve Jobs was still alive, they probably would have seriously considered merging because they were because they were so close and they they worked so well together that he could have seen that but i I think you could have seen you know disney get purchased by one of these other companies because it it was a lot smaller and it didn't have you know all of these very well-known properties and, and make that make a ton of money like it does now so i think that acquisition really was the most important because it led to pixar and marvel and star wars and fox i think to your point pixar is probably the biggest acquisition or the best acquisition that Bob Iger's done so far just because it brought in all those characters into the fold. It revitalized Disney animation and the company is built on animation and how animation goes, everything else goes because that feeds merchandise sales, that feeds people in the theme parks, that feeds rides, it that feeds everything. And so that really was the most important one. Once they fixed that, that kind of led to everything else. You know, I think... If they didn't have Marvel, I think they'd still be okay. If they didn't have Star Wars, I think they'd still be okay. I will say in another couple years, once Fox kind of gets settled in, that may turn out to be an even more important acquisition because of the amount of content they're getting now, because now they're fighting the streaming wars and without just boatloads of content. Because like with Netflix, you just have to have volume and volume of content. You need high quality content, but you need a lot of it. And so with Fox... You know, they have all the Fox shows, they have FX, like The Simpsons specifically. So they own the majority of Hulu. So that they're gonna put FX on Hulu. They're gonna have they're gonna have the Simpsons on Disney Plus. So they now have more characters, you know, for Marvel, the X-Men. So I, I think that may turn out to be a very important acquisition. But I do think 
you're right. Pixar, the first one, kind of it set the tone for Iger's tenure and and how the company was going to change. Nice. Well, they. I just realized that Disney now owns. So they bought um in FX bought into syndication of Supernatural. So in essence, Disney owns Supernatural, kind of. They own the rights to show it, I guess. Yeah. 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 So it'll probably maybe it'll be on Hulu then. Maybe. Yeah, because all, all that stuff's going to Hulu. So, all right. Well, I think that that wraps up the show for this week. Again, I thought it was a, a very interesting book. I thought you were going to say, I thought it was a very interesting st- show. And <laughs> I was going to say, way to pat yourself on the back. There, no, I, I thought it was an interesting book. I definitely recommend, you know, anybody listening to go read it. I think it, it is a very good read for Disney fans out there. So, awesome. So want to, you know, thank everybody again for listening this week. Thanks for lending us your ears. Yeah. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or Instagram. We're at Enchanted Ears Podcast on both. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, uh, wherever tell Alexa, leave us a rating. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's how that works. I don't know. I, don't I was going to say. Don't have an Alexa, but. I think you could probably do that. Alexa, give them a five-star rating. So Alexa, write a, write a rating for me. I, that would be interesting. I bet I bet it can do that. So let do us you know. Think, I was going to say, if do you think us on, right now telling Alexa, leave us a five-star rating? No, you, have to, you can't say us. You have to okay. say Enchanted Alexa, Ears Podcast. Alexa, please leave Enchanted Ears Podcast a five-star rating. I think we just picked up like 50 five-star ratings <laughs> because of that. So we need to do one for Google too. Tell Google. Oh, okay. Um, what's Google? It's just Google. Oh, just say Google. Hey, Google, leave Enchanted Ears Podcast a five-star rating and say that Angela and Joe are the most good-looking and great hosts that there are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully Google picked that up. So we're just, we're just uh, racking up the, the, uh, the ratings now. So Do we have to tell Google to stop recording? Because now I feel like we just, we just recorded all that as part of our rating too. Who cares? We'll take it. So. <laughs> So, yeah. So thanks again, and and those those ratings and reviews really help. It it really helps uh, us reach a larger audience. So we appreciate it. We really appreciate you, the listeners. If you have a question you want us to answer, send it in uh, via our website, enchantedearspodcast.com/slash/podcast/question. You know, we've had some questions in in the past on ranking the the movies or or ranking the Avengers, different things that, that we've done, you know, recently over the past few weeks. So, you know, we, we definitely love to hear your questions. And until then, have a great week. Bye now. How do I start this again? <laughs> my sound bar over there and it's going crazy it's not about a bad idea recording this one late (laughs) oh man okay you ready (laughs) (laughs) i can't even look at you (laughs) oh don't record after dark (laughs) welcome to the enchanted ears podcast where we discuss anything and everything disney i'm angela and i'm joe (laughs) what are you I don't know why it's so funny. <laughs> just have to, I mean, I'm okay until you like start putting your phone in front of your face. All right, let's try this one again. Mm-hmm.